Well, I want to draw your attention just tonight to this passage of Scripture that was read in your hearing, the book of Revelation and the first chapter. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. The book is called Revelation, and it's a a literal apocalypse, that is, a literal unveiling. Curtains are pulled back, and when the curtain is pulled back, the whole cosmos, the whole of heaven and earth, God and man, is revealed to us in teaching and in a series of mighty scenarios. The opening verses tell us that the book comes from God the Father. It's a revelation which God gave then to John. It's given to the Apostle John for him to show to God's servants, the bond slaves of Jesus Christ. And throughout the book then, John is uh, bearing testimony to the word of God. He writes down what God reveals to him. There's a great blessing then in the third verse that's promised to those who read the book and hear it and take it to heart. So let's get going then without any more introduction because the time is near, he says in the third verse. So firstly, we see here what happened to John on the Lord's Day. John calls us back to a particular Lord's Day in his own life when he was on the Isle of Patmos. He was on this prison island because of his testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells us on this particular Lord's Day, three things happened to him. Firstly, on this day, he was in the spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that he was in some kind of emotional condition. He's not referring at all to certain feelings because uh, spirituality is not an emotion or a feeling. He's not referring either to what in the ordinary sense every single believer every day of his life is in the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in union with the Lord Jesus Christ all our lives. It's the norm, it's the standard for believers that they are comforted and helped and led by the spirit of Almighty God. We're not alone, but the spirit is with us always. John is referring to something distinctive and different. He was in the spirit in the sense that the spirit of inspiration and the spirit of illumination and revelation had come into his life and upon his soul in this special way at this special time. He was in the spirit of prophecy. The second thing that we're told about him was that he heard a great voice, verse 10. And it sounded to John, he tells us elsewhere, like the sound of many waters. Now, uh, the Isle of Patmos, I understand, is uh, like a great pancake island. It's flat, it's offshore, and it's uh, bleak and wind-blown. And you hear the roar of the sea everywhere on that island. And yet this voice was so powerful that it completely drowned the sound of the waves. It was the voice of many waters, rich and tumbling and majestic. And that voice gave him the commission to write to the churches of Asia. And the third thing we are told, that John saw the glorious Son of Man. He turned around to look to where, 
who was speaking. Where was the voice coming from? And what he saw, first of all, were seven golden lampstands. And for a moment, they drew his attention. And he glanced at them, the gleaming cluster of light from the lampstands. But this didn't hold his attention because there was something superlatively attractive there. It isn't the church itself in the candlesticks that holds his attention. It's the sight that he's given in the midst of these seven lampstands is the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees him and that vision grips him and holds him. And he's fascinated by what he sees and he's trying to explain what he saw to us. And uh, it's a common misunderstanding of this great book to imagine that it is concerned primarily with the foretelling of uh, future events, as if it was a kind of history that was written beforehand. But this book is first and foremost a revelation, and it is a revelation of the glory of the Son of God, the glory of the Lamb. And what it sets before us in almost every chapter is the majesty of Christ, the Lord of history, the Lord of our history, the Lord who's brought us here tonight and gathered us together and under the authority of the Bible, the one in whom all human history has its meaning and at last has its consummation. And so I want to go on now to highlight some of the points which our attention is drawn to in this scene. So let's deal with the question of who is this exalted Lord? And John is seeing the same Christ that he had known uh, while he had been repairing the nets of his father on the boat and with his brother James and uh, the Jesus that he knew about and had been introduced to came by and, and called him and said, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. And that's where John's testimony begins. I saw someone like a son of man. In other words, he saw someone that looked human. He wasn't a phantom. He was completely an ordinary human being without a question of that. And he looks at his glorious Lord. And the first thing that strikes him is the humanness of this exalted Savior. He's got all the recognizable human features, the whole of the human proportion and limbs and a chest and a beautiful face and hair and so on. And he says that this is the Son of Man. And that's what Jesus Christ still is. That's what Jesus of Nazareth still is. That his humanity still remains. That the one who comes and meets with us tonight, that he's not a, a spooky figure at all, but that it's just one that we can speak with and open uh, ourselves unafraid to, and a, a very loving and human person. And he's with us, and he was with John on that Lord's Day too. And yet it wasn't the humanness of the earthly ministry. It's the same Christ, and this Christ is still human. The Christ who said, come and I'll make you fishers of men. And, but now, oh, he's been exalted. Now he's clothed with a regal garment. There's a golden sash upon him and his head and hair are white as, as well as white as snow. 
And we have to catch something of this because this phrase, uh, son of man, goes back to the book of Daniel in chapter 7. And he's the ancient of days, the one who was prophesied by Daniel. He's the great and almighty God, the one that Daniel speaks of and calls the son of man. And when he sees him, John acknowledges that the Jesus he knew is the son of man that Daniel spoke of. He's the has the mark of deity upon him. He has a divine magnificence, Christ in glory, Christ in splendor, that belonged in the Old Testament to God the Father uniquely, not even to the angels. But this Jesus that he, that he sees there on the island with him is glorifying and magnificent. He has an exalted and transformed and transfigured humanity. And let's pause and see the significance of that. That although the Lord Jesus is today uh, a risen saviour, that that exaltation has not destroyed his, his humanity. The, the human feelings and emotions that he can be touched by the feeling of our infirmities, the writer of the Hebrews says. We come back so often to the great aphorism of Rabbi Duncan that the dust of the earth is on the throne of the majesty on high. That Christ has a human body, that he has a human psychology, that the seed of Abraham has inherited uh, the earth. He's undergone the most sublime transfiguration, not only his, his body, but his soul and his spirit too. He's not today a, a man of sorrows. He's not today a, acquainted with grief. He remembers those days when his heart was broken and his step was heavy, when he experienced a renunciation and abandonment by that far, by his father. That memory is the stuff of his compassion. And so he is able when you feel very, very alone and, uh, and afraid. He remembers that. He, he knows when he felt he couldn't cope with things and he's able to sympathize with you. But uh, God has now wiped away every tear from his eyes. God has just done that to him. And now he's not a weepy savior. At the right hand of God. His body has been transformed. The clarity of his vision is increased. No longer then is he limited because of his body to be in a synagogue one day. And by a riverside another day. And in Sakhar in, uh, in Samaria another day. But now his, his presence fills the universe. And he's with us this evening hour. This John had lain his head on the Lord's bosom only two hours before his passion. He'd seen the betrayal. He'd seen the arrest. Perhaps he was a witness to the scourging or he heard the whip as it just tore into Jesus' back. And certainly he was a witness of the crucifixion. Now, oh, that's God. All the humiliation, it's behind him. John sees Christ and he is satisfied with the travail of his soul. His body is transformed and his soul is transformed and now he is sublime and supreme in his excellence. He's in the midst of the throne 
And John is shown it for a reason, because around him there are all the marks of cruelty and imprisonment and captivity and persecution and threat. And uh, God's enemies are active and busy everywhere, and the church is suffering. And the world is dealing with the church as it dealt with its Lord. And John is shown then, for his comfort and for the comfort of those who will read this book, the power and magnificence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where our Lord's pilgrimage has ended, it has ended at the right hand of God. And he is given assurance of such is the glory that the church itself will one day share, will be an inheritor, an heir of the glory, a co-heir with Jesus Christ of this wonderful inheritance. That our Lord's prayer that we will be with him one day and we will see his glory. He's asked the Father for us that this privilege will be ours and it will be answered. And there is this earnest given to John that it will be so. That our bodies will undergo the same transformation that Jesus has. That our souls will experience the same balm and comfort that Jesus has. We will sit as partakers of his eminence and we will sit in the midst of his throne. So we have asked this question then as to who is this exalted Lord. And so now let us ask another question. Where? Where is this exalted Lord? And we are told that he is surrounded on all sides by seven golden candlesticks. In other words, we are told that these represent the Christian church. And that therefore the risen Christ is in the midst of his congregations. He is shown in all his eminence and all his exalted glory, and yet he equally is the one who is in the very midst of his church on earth. Well, you know how we can break that down uh, quite simply and easily. We have a promise, for example, that where two or three on earth gather in his name, he's there. There he is in the midst. And we know that he's present not because we have certain goose pimples and the hairs on the back of our heads rise when he enters a gathering. That uh, we can create an atmosphere, we can switch the lights off and have candles on the seats. Or we can have stained glass windows or the organ can play sensually or a flute can play in the background or a group can sing in beautiful harmonies or a Gregorian chant or a plain song can be sing can be sung or there can be a, a communicator who'll whisper into a microphone and seek to calm us and we feel religious. Not by any of that human engineering do we know that Jesus Christ is in a certain place? Supposing we, we came and we've had a really tough week and our faith has been tested and our hearts have been broken and we've come dejected and against our wills and we've gathered on the Lord's day with the Lord's people and uh, the building feels chilly and drafty and we feel alone in it. And no one seems to smile at us. And it's a spiritual icebox. Christ is still 
here. He is promised. And so he's always in the midst of the churches. You'll find the Savior. You come here on the Lord's Day and some of your friends won't be here. Some of the boys and girls you know, they're ill and they're home. Jesus will always be here. The head is never separated from the body. He gives directions to his body. He speaks. He has words to say. He has counsels to give us. He has encouragements, rebukes, exhortations, doctrines to teach us and inform us. He makes the gospel come, not in word only, but with power and with the Holy Spirit and with much assurance. And uh, we are to search ourselves so often uh, as to whether we prepare ourselves for an encounter with him, with the divine teaching, with the divine therapy, with the divine analysis, with the divine coaching with the spiritual exercises that we are asked to go through as the Lord deals with us, as he speaks to us, as he did already today, speak to us about our sin. Or then as he speaks to us, as he's speaking to us now about the glories of the exalted Son of Man. And as we sing the hymns, are we conscious that we are singing not just to one another, but we're singing about someone mighty and majestic, and we are giving him praise in song. Do we listen to his words in preaching as those on whose ears the words fall, not just some logical utterance, but life-giving spirit and life-giving power with the, the possibility every time we hear it of our lives changed, our lives elevated and transformed and reinvigorated. Christ in the midst Of the seven golden candlesticks, two Christians never meet together without Christ being there. Hearing all they say, seeing all they do. This is an inescapable reality of our Christian lives. And again, you can look at Christ's presence then in this way. That he is the glory that's in the midst of the church. He's at the heart He's at the center of the church. He is the church's splendor. We find ourselves, as John did in his day, a small community of believers, uh, an island of believers in a sea of paganism. And we stand before the world and we stand uh, with a commission that's been given to us, with a, a mission, with the challenge of the gospel. And we're saying to men and women, we're saying to Aberystwyth, come with us, and we will do you good. But what is the church's glory, and what is its chief attraction? What can a little congregation like ourselves have to offer to the town in which it lives? And all it can offer is Jesus Christ. It's got nothing else. And it must be exceedingly careful, lest it tries to offer something else. Or that it starts to be content. That it can offer something else to a town that doesn't want our Savior. We have no alternative. We can't say to people, well, you don't like our emphasis on Jesus Christ. Well, let's talk to you about culture. Let's talk to you about family life. Let's talk to you about music. Or our choir. 
We don't have uh, therapy and education and a philosophical system to offer people if they don't want Jesus Christ. He's the only one that we have to offer them. We have a, a prophet who can teach them and we have a lamb that can take away their sin and we can have a great shepherd king who will protect them and guide them and lead them and won't be separated from them. That's all we have if they don't want him. We haven't got anything else to offer to them. There's nothing on the face of the earth that's more useless than a congregation without Jesus Christ. It may be packed to the rafters and it may have in its membership men of the highest ability and uh, qualification and prestige. It may have the most marvelous orator in its pulpit. And every kind of social and leisure activity in the buildings that surround the auditorium. And yet, unless the Lord is present in the midst and sitting alongside you and walking the aisle and coming up to meet you and speaking to you, then its glory is worse than useless. And how careful every church ought to be to ensure that the Lord Jesus is the glory. He's the only glory that we have. Because uh, when people walk into this service, there's no way that we have of entertaining them. There's no way that we can put on an act, uh, that we can make them laugh and uh, we can make them weep, and that we can send them home feeling good about themselves. We only have Jesus Christ to be their teacher and the one who will cleanse them from their sins and the one who will help them to the very end of their lives. We're not particularly interesting people. We're not wealthy people. We're not beautiful people. And if we don't have Jesus Christ, then we have nothing because the glory that's in the midst of the gospel church is our Savior. We have a Lord who will care for us and that's all. If we don't have him, we've got nothing. Um, Christ is in the midst of the church in the way Jehovah was there in, in Psalm 46. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. And that church with Christ's glory at its heart is inviolable. The gates of hell can't triumph over because God's Christ is, is in her midst and so as long as this particular congregation will, will build on the rock Jesus Christ as long as the climactic aspect of worship after we've sung to him and prayed to him and looked to him then he comes and he is presented to us and offered to sinners and he is the strength of sanctifying hope of every believer here as long as we point to the Lamb of God who takes away our sins forever and ever, then the church will stand and it will be secure. There's always the possibility, you see, of a church without Christ. There's always the possibility of a church with Christ outside. Christ outside and all the people inside. And Christ is there and he's knocking. You hear him knocking. He's knocking. He, he wants to be let in. Behold, I, I'm not there with you, he says. I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. 
They can be New Testament congregations and they have a form of godliness. But they are strangers to the power of godliness. They have the right office bearers and so on and regenerate members. But Jesus Christ has been marginalized and he's on the outside. And that possibility always exists and such a congregation can't plead then uh, the Lord's promise of perpetuity and, and preservation. So the Lord Jesus is present where his people gather in his name and he is the glory of the congregation and he is the defense and the builder. I will build my church, he says. But surely he's more than that. He's not only in the midst of the candlestick. But he's also in the heart of every child of God. He never leaves. He never forsakes anyone for whom he died. A little Christian boy. A little Christian girl. Maybe six years of age, seven years of age. But he, she has put a trust in the Lord. And the Lord will never leave her. His presence, as particular as his love. And his love is intensely particular. He loved me. And he gave himself for me. And are we jealous of this privilege? And are we conscious of this day by day? Christ is in me. Christ is with me. He's before me. He's behind me. He's beneath me. He's above me. He's alongside me. Underneath are his everlasting arms. And as a Christian, I never have a moment's privacy. I'm never alone. No matter what the temptations and the sufferings and the obligations I face, whatever they may be, I'm not going to face them alone because Christ has come and he dwells in me and I have illimitable access to him as my Lord and Savior. And so there's always fellowship. And our fellowship, John tells them, is not just with you, it's with the Father and with his Son. So John sees the exalted Lord and he sees him in the midst of the candlestick and he sees a glorious presence and it means that the church lives under his constant surveillance and is sustained by his ever-giving strength and directed in its day-to-day leadership by his love because he's always in the midst of the candlesticks. And then thirdly, I want you to see how the awesome Christ humbles the church. And he tells us, John tells us, that as he perceived this Christ, he fell before him. He just collapsed at his feet as though he were dead. You've seen someone faint, I'm sure, and they just collapse. And uh, having someone who's had the embarrassment of doing that from time to time, I'm so glad when it happens to me and there's no one around to see me. Or I'm in a safe place, like I'm in a bedroom or whatever. and I have one of these vasovagal attacks and down I go. And then uh, that's what happened to John. But it wasn't a vasovagal attack. It was a sign, a sight. That sign of the glory of Christ that he saw. He was overwhelmed by him. The light of his countenance, it was as brilliant as the sun shining in all its strength. He was just dazzled by the sight of Christ. And the overall impression of Jesus Christ being in the midst of his people, as John says, as if a man was looking straight into the sun, 
we had that partial eclipse, didn't we? Just a few weeks ago. And it was a sunny day. It wasn't like the total eclipse when we saw nothing in August uh, a dozen years ago. And uh, it was a great anticlimax when that day came. And we saw pictures of it elsewhere, but we didn't get a glimpse. We had a glimpse this time, but we were all told, you'll be very careful now. The sun, when it shines, oh, it can damage the retina of your eye. You be very careful. You wear special glasses. You look through a pinprick. You look at a shadow of what you see. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And John, as he sees that light, the one who gave the sun its light, and he sees that God, and he's overwhelmed. And the strength drains out of his body. And he collapses, uh, prostrate before the Lord. Others would say, is he dead? Has he gone? And the great lesson is that the majesty of God in Christ is such as to overwhelm us with a sense of dread. Those who are the closest to him. And John was very close to him. And John had seen him often and had joined arms with him and at the supper had sat next to him and put his head on the bosom of Christ as they talked together and showed their affection for one another. But he, when he sees this Christ exalted and magnificent and awe-inspiring, he falls before him as dread, with dread. And so it was when other people saw him, when Moses saw him, and he was put in the cleft of a rock, and just the back parts of God could he see, because no one can see God and live. And when Elijah saw him, and uh, it wasn't in the earthquake, and it wasn't in the fire, and it wasn't in the wind, but it was a still small voice, still and small that he heard God speak. That's what he could bear. And when Isaiah saw him in the temple, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, he was overwhelmed again. Oh, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, he said. Or when Peter saw the nets filled with fish as they'd never been filled before, at the command of Christ, the deep, had given up its fish and they'd all come from across the Galilee lake into the nets and they'd filled one boat and filled another and Peter falls in the fish before the feet of Christ and says, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. When Saul of Tarsus met him on the road to Damascus, then he said, Who art thou, Lord? There is no description of, of people coming into the presence of God in the Bible and enjoying it. You can't find that in the Bible. They long for it to be done. They long for it to be over. The Philippian jailer felt suicidal as the Lord came to that prison and shook his arm men at the singing of Paul and Barnabas. And I wonder whether any of us have ever felt Christ as a threat But that is built into the very holiness of God. No man can see God and live. And we have never understood what his sublime holiness is unless we have seen it 
as intimidating, unless we have seen it as overbearing, as, as though we've seen it as otherworldly, an, an omnipotent challenge to our uh, creatureliness, that we are little specks and that our heart is beating because of his strength and our lungs are breathing in and out because of his strength and our mind is thinking and our eyes are seeing only because in him we live and move and have our being. And if in a moment he takes it away, we are no more. And has he not the right to do that with his creatures? Now, this is not the only way to react to Christ. It had not been the exclusive way that John had reacted to him. He had spent precious moments with the Lord, his head on his bosom. But here he falls at his feet, impotent, defenseless, possessing a total dread because he is looking into something that he finds utterly threatening, different from any other being. Everything else that he's seen is groaning. Everything else is fallen, but this is one without spot or blemish or any such thing. Here is uncreated holiness. And he is here in John's presence. And John collapses before it. He doesn't fall on his back and laugh inanely. He doesn't fall on his back and make animal noises clucking like a hen or barking like a dog. He falls forward on his face before this extraordinary holy being. Well, who should feel like that? Let me go on to the next question then. Who should feel like this? And we can answer it. We can say all the seven churches should feel like that. Churches like Smyrna and Philadelphia, of which our Lord makes little criticism, that they should bow before him like that. Here we have the Apostle John and the one Jesus loved especially, the one who was his faithful witness, the one who'd suffered for his faith and had been obedient even to imprisonment and had not caved in under the pressure of denying him or blaspheming his name. And he'd been close to God all his life. He loved the Lord Jesus and the Lord Jesus loved him. His life had been a life of eminent usefulness and spirituality. And everything seemed right between him and his Savior. No backsliding, no secret sins, no lack of assurance. And yet John, in the consciousness of salvation, and in the persuasion of his own integrity, and the possession of his strong faith, and the testimony of a clear conscience, he's overwhelmed by Christ. And I would say that it is utterly normal that when we get the clearest vision of the Lord Jesus that we've ever had in our lives, that we're going to feel overwhelmed, overawed, utterly unworthy, our knees giving way before the God, well, of the Old Testament, yes. The God of John Calvin, yes. The God of Jonathan Edwards, yes. But remember, he is standing before the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he doesn't stay standing for long, because he 
has such a lucid glimpse of the glory that is Christ's. And he falls at his feet in total submission and and dependence. He has no self-worth. He has no self-justification. So all the seven churches and our church should ever be falling before him. There should be a reverence and a godly fear that marks a congregation that is a spirit-filled congregation. I'm quoting to you from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And there, as he describes a spirit-filled church, he thinks things are done decently and things are in order because of him who is in the midst of them. And then secondly, I would say to you, backsliding congregations should be falling before Christ. Churches like the church at Ephesus and the church at Thyatira, which were not where they should be. And every Christian, almost every Christian, let me qualify it, has been a backslider at some time or other. And it would be very, very strange if there were no backsliders in this congregation, this evening. And yet with our spiritual weakness, there is so little interest in spirituality. There is so little hunger and thirst for righteousness. There is so little taking up our cross and denying ourselves and following Jesus. There is so little readiness to give a reason of the hope that is in us. To all who ask us, there is so little lack of shame that for the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is so little aching longing for a closer walk with God and a mortifying of anything that would kill the gentle dove of the Spirit as he would flutter down and, and rest upon us. That he would create in our hearts and lives a much deeper prayerfulness than we have known so far on our pilgrimage. I think it's all right in our church meetings to discuss fabric, and uh, that's the place for it. But when we gather on the Lord's Day, the focus of our life is on the Spirit of Christ. Are we honoring him? Is he in our midst? Is he ministering to us? How can I walk closer with him? How can I please him better in the days to come? How can I be filled with the Holy Spirit? How can I present my body as a living sacrifice to him? How can I be clothed in all the armor of God to resist the wiles of the devil? How can I love my neighbor as myself? How can I love my enemy How can I bear the burden of the weak brothers and the weak sisters? How can I live a more Christ-centered life? I should be absolutely obsessed with finding answers to those questions and working it out in my experience day by day. The backslider, drawn back, drawn back to longing to know those things more and more in his experience. And then, thirdly, every real congregation everywhere needs to be falling before this Savior. 
What are the reasons we are falling before him? Well, in the next two chapters, we, we are told. We are given some examples of why churches should be falling before him. Um, falling in repentance before him. Firstly, there's the Ephesus reason. In chapter 2 and verses 4 and 5, what was wrong with the Ephesus church? They'd left their first love. They'd abandoned their first love. You know you had a, a first love. When I was a little boy, I saw a girl and... Uh, she was uh, six, and I was six, I suppose, and we were in the morning assembly. And I looked across and smiled at her, and she smiled at me. And I went home, and I told my mother I was in love. I never spoke to her. I don't know what happened to her. Um, she was my first love. And then uh, there was a, other loves. I abandoned my first love. That's all right when you're six and a little blonde girl smiles at you and you smile back at her. But if it's the Lord of glory and he's given his life for me and he's paid the price of my guilt and shame, he's died for me because he loved me. And now he lives and he, and he prays for me. And he opened my heart and he became my Lord and Savior. But cold times have come. And I've left my first love. And now there's my business. And there's relationships. And these things are more important to me. Mammon has increased and Christ has decreased. I've left my first love. I need to fall before him in repentance. Or there's the Smyrna reason to fall before Jesus Christ. Fear of the future. What might happen? What's going to happen? What if I never marry? What if I never have children? What if I have an incurable illness? What if I get Alzheimer's? What's it going to be? What's the future going to be for me? What if uh, persecution, the Third World War breaks out? What's it going to be like? Verse 10 of chapter 2, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry about tomorrow. And he puts before us the choice, doesn't he? Either we trust in God and we look to him or we're going to worry. And either the worry is going to kill the praying, the trusting, or the trusting is going to kill the worry. And we can't dwell on these things. What we can dwell in is, I don't know the future, but he guides me with his hand. With God things don't just happen. Everything by him is planned. So he's in charge. He's in control of what my future will be. Whether I'll have a companion or whether I'll be satisfied with him as my best companion. And he will make it clear to me and I can trust him about the future. There'll be time enough when troubles come 
to take measures and act as a Christian should act. Of course we can pre-plan. Of course we can make applications when it's essential. But there are churches whose present is mortgaged and whose today is a strain because they are afraid of what's going to happen tomorrow. And thirdly, there's the Pergamon reason to fall before Jesus Christ, and that's heresy. Chapter 2 and 14 and 15, you have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Likewise also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. They were tolerating false teaching. There were people with gleaming faces and shining eyes who wanted to tell them of the new blessings and the new insights that they had. And they were gathering people and they were picking off the weak in the congregation and they were gathering together. And they were doing what we would do today, send emails and phone calls and give them literature and do it surreptitiously. And it was having an impact and there was division. And there was hostility focused upon the, the angel of the church, the pastor, the preacher of the church. What would you think of a family whose father had certain godly convictions, but the family brought a man in, a man, he came to eat with them every day. And he spoke at the table to the man's wife and to the man's children. Things that constantly grieved the father. He built the house He'd taken the wife from poverty and made her rich and he looked after the children's education and need and he cared for them so that they lacked nothing and yet now they bring a stranger in and they're all eager, listening to what a stranger has to say. The sweet lies that seem so much more exciting than the boring words that their father gives to them. What should such a family do? Such a family should break its heart and fall on its knees in sorrow before its father and confess in repentance that they've listened to the voice of strangers and not to his loving voice. Never let him and his false doctrines into their place again. Now oh, there's the Thyatira reason to fall before Jesus Christ and that's unrepentant, sustained immorality. Verse 20, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food, sacrifice to idols. My friends, these are churches that are born in New Testament revival condition where the word of God comes with the Holy Ghost and with much power to the churches and the gospel is spreading through Turkey because that's where these seven churches are. It was still at the time of the apostles. And yet now it was not doctrinal error, but it was immorality tolerated in the church. Here was a, a pulpit and office in the congregation being offered to the adulterer, to the practicing homosexual. We think again of a woman being invited uh, into the family to sit at the table day by day. And the son's committing adultery with his Jezebel and the father is breaking his heart. And this is what was happening in Thyatira. 
And Christ had given this church time to repent and he had spoken and addressed them in preaching and brought the seventh commandment to them and brought the Sermon on the Mount to them and urged them and exhorted them to cease from their immorality but they had hardened their hearts. That the church loved Jezebel more than Christ. He says terrible words, verse 23 Jesus says, I will strike her children dead. Let the adulterer fall dead rather than call away the people of God from their first love. And then there's the saddest reason to fall before Jesus Christ. A name for being religious. Which name was hiding a state of inward death. Chapter 3 and verse 1. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive. But you are dead. People talked about the congregation. They said, oh, that's a live congregation. Oh, plenty of life in that church. But people mistake liveliness for life. And crowds for God's blessing. And enthusiasm for godliness. And sincerity for salvation. But you and I know that many religions have crowds of lively enthusiasts. Who bathe in Indian rivers by their million. And go on pilgrimages to Mecca. And stand in the Vatican Square every Sunday morning to have a glimpse of a man in white speaking things from a window to them. And they have no understanding of the gospel. And when Joseph Stalin died, there was such a spirit of fear in Moscow that no one was prepared to write a death certificate because they'd be shot. So the days dragged on and the outside world believed that Stalin was ill but they couldn't believe that he was dead. The world was in ignorance about him and fear prevented the people who knew telling the truth. But Christ just cuts through the outward appearance and Christ is looking at the hearts of a congregation and he knows where life is, where love is, where repentance is where trust is, where holiness is, where the highest longings and desires are. He knows when a church possesses a carefully nourished reputation, it's all spin. You can fool people, but you can't fool the great physician. Let the man who is merely outwardly and has a name that he's a Christian, let him fall as one dead before the Lord who looks And sees everything about him. And then there is the Philadelphia reason to fall before Jesus Christ. There's spiritual weakness. Chapter 3 verse 8. I know that you have little strength. Well that's better than having no strength at all. But you remember what Paul prays for the Ephesian church. That you would be strengthened by the might of the spirit in our inner man. That would we, we would be clothed in all the armor of God to stand in an evil day. And having done all to stand, to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. 
Well, that's what we are called to be, not, not spiritual weaklings. Hasn't God made his resources adequate for you? For the challenge of this week? For relationships? For purity? For godly living? For courage in uh, an ungodly atmosphere? Hasn't God made those things clear to us? Are our resources inadequate? You think of the sluggard in the book of Proverbs. Others are working in the harvest, but he's lying back in his armchair. I admire you working so hard, but I have little strength, he says. Exercise yourself unto godliness. Grow in grace. Grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Fall at his feet as if you were dead. And then there's a Laodicean reason to fall before him. And that is lukewarm religion. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either the one or the other. Verses 15 and 16. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Religion is tasteless, a soggy lettuce. As lukewarm soup. They would never take the alabaster box of precious perfumes and pour it over the head of Jesus. What a waste of money. Let's sell it and give the money to the poor. They would never say, this one thing I do. They would never say, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering and be conformed to him in his death. They would never say, if Jesus Christ be the Son of God and died for me, then nothing I can do can be too much for him. They love moderate religion. But the Christian faith has at its heart immoderate, immoderate religion. Excessive, prodigal love for God. It's a love which we sing about. We say, it demands my soul, my life, my all. He died for me. And so I give myself to him. They were lukewarm and they didn't know it. They were deluded. And lukewarm religion never walks alone. And so it is with the Laodicean church. They had this marvelous self-love. They had this wonderful self-image. They said, we're rich, aren't we? Aren't we rich? And increased in goods. And we need nothing at all. Do we? And God's verdict when he looked on them was very different. God said, you are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. And when you fall before the feet of Christ, you discover yourself. In dying, you live. In losing yourself, you find yourself. In kneeling down, you are exalted. And so this congregation, uh, we, need, we need to fall before him. We need to kneel before him. We need to feel dead in his presence. That all of life and light and love, joy and peace is all in him. Of his fullness we must receive. Can't get by this week. Can't be the father I should be. Can't be the teacher I should be. Can't be the mother, the child. Can't be the husband. Can't be the wife. Can't be the church member. Unless I've seen him. Unless I've had a new vision of him. Unless I'm open again to his wonderful glory and power and 
I'm a falling Christian. I'm a bowing Christian. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. That's a falling Christian. As he sees again the majesty of Christ. As the spirit of prophecy comes upon him on the Lord's day. And he's lost in wonder and love and praise. Before this great, great, great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, bless your word to us tonight then. And help us then to have this sight of him that's given to us in the word of God. And be moved and exercised in our souls to love him and worship him. And that he's the altogether and exclusive lovely one. There's no one like him. And our life found in serving him and pleasing him. Ere we sleep tonight, oh Lord, may we renew our vows and commit ourselves anew to serving so great a saviour as Jesus. What a privilege to have him as our own. Hear our prayers which we bring in Jesus' name. Amen.